Okay, why don't we uh, call the meeting to order? I'm going to close the door. Okay. All right. So I don't think. Oh, hi, Carl. That's what was in Legistar, huh? There were two in Legistar. Mm -hmm. I can show you what was in Legistar. These two things were in Legistar. I can switch it over here. Do you want to do that? That does help. Well, if you have something updated, just let us know and then just get the updated ones to uh, Patrick and he can put it into Legistar. Yep. Okay, why don't we get why don't we get started? Uh, call the roll call. You got everybody. We're set. Okay. Do you remember uh, introduction and parliamentary procedure? I don't think we really have unless anybody has anything they want to talk about. No. Okay. Um, all right. Everybody have an opportunity to look at the minutes from last time. Make a motion for approval. Second. Okay. Motion by Bill. Uh, second by Ken. Any uh, discussion? Sorry. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion carried. Okay. Public comment. Is there anybody who wants to make a comment? And this would be on something that is not on the agenda. Okay. All right. Any disclosures or recusals? That going to work, Carl? I'll give it a shot. Okay. All right. <coughs> I wonder if we can maybe talk to them about something else that might work better for him. I don't know if, if we have anything. Okay. All right. So no disclosures and recusals. Okay. So new business. Um, so, you have in front of you and the packet of information that Patrick um, handed you. There's been a lot of feedback on this resolution that's been generated over the course of the past couple of days. Um, so I thought we were going to have a lot of things to, to talk about this evening with regard to this lease, uh, propo this proposed lease. Uh, but if you look at the very last attachment, uh, which is an email from Sabrina Tolley, uh, who happens to not be here this week, but she's on vacation. Thank you for, thank her for working while she was on vacation. Um, she did provide us with an update uh, with regard to uh, the plan commission action last night. And the plan commission acted on the lease last evening and recommended that the resolution for the proposed parking lease uh, be placed on file without prejudice. And my understanding of without prejudice means that it's still open and, and something that people could um, uh, open up again in the future, whereas with prejudice means that it would be um, finalized and done. Um, they found that the 75 on-site valet stalls at the hotel would be sufficient to serve the hotel uh, while the at least while the office building is under construction, if that does move forward. Um, so 
the suggestion here is that the Transportation Commission uh, would recommend to the council that we either place a resolution on file or recommend that uh, the resolution be placed on file without prejudice, which would be what the um, plan commission had done. So, so I'll open it up for comments. Uh, without prejudice. Okay, so there's a motion that the um, Transportation Commission recommend to the council that uh, this resolution be placed on file without prejudice. I'll second. Okay, there's a motion and a second. Discussion? When, I do have a question. <clears throat> sure. Um, when you say they found that there were sufficient parking stalls, who is they? It was a was the request rescinded? I'm a little bit confused. Was the request rescinded by the applicant or? Well, the pl uh, and and I didn't read everything about this development, but there are certain parking. You know, there are certain parking spaces that are required right. uh, for the hotel. And I think um, in order to try and accommodate that, because the office building that's proposed would take up some of that parking because there's going to be a ramp that's going to be built. So while that ramp is being built, those additional parking uh, stalls would not be available to the hotel. So just to make sure that they had adequate parking, they were looking to lease these spaces in the ramp. But there were a lot of questions. Uh, Liddell Zellers had some questions about uh, using up that uh, those parking stalls uh, as opposed to, um, say, for example, um, Breeze Stevens, the fielder, the special events in the area. Uh, part of why uh, certain elders supported using TIF to build the garage was because the public would have access to those uh, parking spaces in the evening in that neighborhood for special events. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of conversation about you know, this lease taking those spaces out of circulation potentially for the public to use. Uh, but since the plan commission, as I understand it, feels that what they have on site is adequate, then it sounds like they wouldn't need to uh, sign a lease for those additional spaces. Has recommended That's my understanding. Tom or anybody? applicant yeah. hasn't rescinded the request. That's my understanding. Tom, do you have any other feedback on this? Would, would you mind coming up? I mean, I read the file. Just so if somebody's watching, they could hear you on the. Yeah, I just want to stay here. Thank you, Tom. I thought Bill Putnam was going to be here, too. So, yeah, so um, I think you summarized it well. There was concern that uh, the rental of the 40 or 50 spaces would decrease the capacity of the Livingston South garage during special events, um, particularly at Breeze Stevens. And so <clears throat> based on that, the Planning Commission did not require, um, I think it's Hotel Indico, to have those spaces available for approval of, of the next section of their archipelago. I always have a hard time saying that. Archipelago mm -hmm. Village. I used to... I actually write the reports for Archipelago Villages, and I still can't say it. <laughs> it's a tough one. <clears throat> so uh, we have a motion on the table. Rebecca? I apologize for coming late. Sure. So in addition to um, part of their motion to place this on file was also altering the conditions 
um, altering the conditions of their whatever permit they were looking for? We, do, we didn't see, we looked in Legistar, Patrick and I both looked in Legistar to see if we could see the actual formal action that the plan commission took, and I couldn't, we couldn't find it. So I don't know the answer to that unless you know the answer. I just thought I heard Tom made, or, or make a reference yeah. to them. You wanted to get the next stage of um, their development into the process. They believe that uh, originally they were going to use some more, it's my understanding they were going to use some more on-site parking spaces, but in the building of the next phase, um, you know, 125 spaces wasn't going to be available, only 75. And so then they were proposing to supplement the needed parking for Hotel Indigo through renting spaces mm -hmm. from the parking utility. Um, some people had concerns regarding that mm -hmm. um, because of the peak events. Mm -hmm. So they decided to, it's my understanding, they decided to approve the next phase of the development without those extra 50 spaces. And so then this little resolution, which was a lease that was kind of, they thought was going to be a condition of approval, ended up not becoming Got a condition of approval. So then it's kind of hanging in space right now. Got it. Thanks. And I had one other question, too, and it, you know, isn't, I guess, relevant <coughs> in this case if it's um, tabled, but in general, I think the lease also was, there was, I couldn't find a copy of the lease on Legistar. Uh, I did, we didn't. Maybe I missed it. But uh, was, do these typically – okay, so there was no – Well, often, oftentimes – yeah, I think the, the general conditions of the lease um, are often put in the resolution. But oftentimes uh, the attorneys prefer not to have the exact lease um, because let's say if, you know, one sentence gets – uh, changed, then it has to go through the committee structure and approved by council again. And so, well, I guess my question was more that it was a little bit unclear whether it was leasing 50 spaces or leasing up to 50 spaces on an as-needed basis. So basically, is it providing capacity for overflow, or is it actually taking 50 spaces on a daily basis? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, Sabrina would have to answer that to see if if they are. Dynamically assigning those spaces, or just saying you have a guaranteed 50 spaces. I don't know. I think they're paying for 50 spaces. Yeah. And and Sabrina, in some of the emails that I saw going back and forth, um, one of the things that she was talking about was that um, even though people reserve these spaces, they typically don't use 100% of them. So, and that was in response to Alder Zeller's. Uh, to Liddell's uh, comments about using a parking for special events. Mm -hmm. But it still would use some, but it likely wouldn't be 50 spaces every night mm -hmm. was her thought process. So my understanding was that they were going to pay for 50, but they wouldn't necessarily always need to use the 50. Yeah. <clears throat> Other comments or questions? Bridget? My understanding, too, is that it was only for overnight <laughs> for days. That's correct. But there was also a, um, an email from somebody at the development who is leasing the spaces during the day saying, saying, yeah. you know, 
they're supposed to be out of there by 7 a.m. So what people who stay at a hotel are move their car by 7 a.m. in the morning? So there was a lot of conversation about that as well. well so the rate was structured right where that where there was a rate for nightly use, but correct outside of that. Well, they were window, it would be charged at the public utility hourly rate. That's correct. But the the people who were leasing the spaces during the day, the question was, are you guaranteeing us those spaces? So if there's, say, there's a maximum of 50 cars from the hotel in there and the people that aren't out of there by 7 in the morning, you know, is that going to disrupt their ability to get at the spaces they're paying for during the day? So there were concerns floating around from a lot of different people about the resolution. So at this point, we have a motion uh, and a second to recommend to the council that we place a resolution on file without prejudice. Any further discussion? All those in favor? Aye. Opposed? Okay, motion carried. Okay. Tom, is very interesting material on Vision Zero. We'll um, start it. So um, I went through some of the police reports for City of Madison, and from 2013 to 2017, we had 38 homicides, 617 rapes, and 2,682 assaults, which is a lot. You know that mm. if you would look at those uh, figures, I think you would be concerned, right? Yeah, I'm a little shocked, actually, yeah. Yeah. If we were to look at crashes, we have 44 fatalities, 399 incapacitating injuries, and um, over 3,000 non-incapacitating injuries. So oftentimes we think of, um, you know, public safety or public health, and we think, well, we have to deal with, with um crime and, and make sure that we're keeping our citizens safe. And yet um, our transportation network, you know, has probably an equal risk to everyone that lives in Madison. Uh, interesting thing, too, is, is that um, <clears throat> if we look at the public safety and health portion of the city's operating budget, it makes up 42 percent, 42 percent of the city's operating budget focus on public safety and, and health. And, and then we think about, well, what, what are the resources we're divide, devoting towards uh, safety within our motor vehicle? And if you wanted to look at what, how they're divided out, uh, this shows something we just actually... Uh, Can I just stop you for a second? This isn't exactly what was distributed in Legistar, correct? Yeah. I, some people are trying to follow along, and so it, it's updated version. Yeah, it's an updated. I yeah. We have some more information. Yeah. And so I... No, we, we'll just get it in Legistar. Mail it out to us. Yeah, I'll, I'll post it on, on Legistar. Super, thanks. This, this actually, this information I just got today, mm -hmm. we did some queries today. Mm -hmm. You think about it, in, the, in those five years, we've had 14 pedestrians killed, four cyclists killed, four motorcyclists killed, 22 motor vehicles killed. And, and then you have another 71 pedestrians incapacitated, 28 cyclists incapacitated, 
13 moped, 39 motorcycle, and 248 uh, motor vehicle drivers or passengers incapacitated. So if I were to um, tell you about a box, right? Someone comes to the city of Madison and they say, well, we have this box. It's a metal box. And it's just an amazing metal box. It'll get you uh, everywhere you need to go. It offers just a tremendous amount of convenience, um, mobility. You can live where you want to. But this box will only kill eight people a year and maim 80 people a year. And it'll cost you $12,000 a year to own. What would you say? <laughs> <laughs> Where am I up? <laughs> Apparently, we've said yes, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Apparently. But if we knew the consequences, we might not have, right? A hundred years ago when this was taking off. So, um, on that, there's a, you know, since the 1990s, uh, there's this, been mo this movement called Vision Zero. It started in Sweden in the 1990s. Um, it's a strategy to eliminate all traffic fatalities and severe injuries while increasing safe, healthy, and equitable mobility for all. Uh, it was first implemented in Sweden in the 1990s. It has proved successful across Europe, and now it's gaining momentum in major American cities. So if we look at the traditional approach versus uh, Vision Zero, a traditional approach might say that traffic deaths are inevitable. And... Um, it's impossible to perfect human behavior, right? And and there's some there's some truth in some of the traditional approach. If you think about the one that sticks to mind is the, the the person that was in the pickup. I believe he was on drugs on West Washington and killed that that master student, you know, exchange student. Just was that last year, Yang? Uh, the year before. The year before, but you know you. Yeah, yeah, in Park Street, you think, well, how how do you how do you solve that? You know, traditional approach is focuses on produce preventing collisions. It says that everyone has a individual responsibility, and it, it kind of says saving lives is expensive. Vision Zero say, states that traffic deaths are preventable. Um, the idea is to integrate human failing in the approach. Uh, the focus, the real focus, is to prevent fatal and severe crashes. Okay, so we have, uh, was it 5,000 crashes in Madison last year? So that's a lot. And, um, or that was in 2017. My daughter was two of those. <laughs> two of those crashes. But, you know, uh, I pay higher insurance right now and I fixed up those crashes because she wasn't hurt. But if you're, um, if you're injured, incapacitated, are killed, those things are permanent, right? Those things are permanent. Um, it uses a systems approach, and it states that saving lives is not expensive. Um, I cut it out a couple of statements that were in some of the um, documents that I believe were in Legistar. From engineering to a public health perspective, while traditional approaches to transportation safety have prioritized Reducing or preventing collisions, Vision Zero instead advocates for the focus on preventing injuries. Okay, again, the focus, you know, crashes are okay, 
but can we really knock down the injuries? You know, last year we had 11 fatalities. So what if we really tried to get to zero? Would we ever get to zero? No. But what if we got to six? That would be five more people walking around. And then next year, that would be five more people walking around. Um, Instead of asking why did that person crash, the Vision Zero framework examines why was that person so seriously injured in the crash. This change in thinking from collision reduction to injury prevention results in a significant shift from an engineering to a public health perspective. So um, the Vision Zero um, network will recognize Vision Zero communities based on these bullets. I'm not going to um, read all the way through them, but they basically say eliminating traffic deaths with an explicit framework. Um, the mayor or a top elected official has to officially commit to Vision Zero. Uh, we have to have a Vision Zero action plan or strategy in place, and they actually have them. You know, they, these are 20 to 30-page booklets saying this is how we're going to get to zero. These are the resources we're going to devote to zero. Key departments, including transportation, public health, and the mayor's office are actively engaged in it. And then oftentimes there's a Vision Zero task force, which regularly meets to lead and evaluate the efforts. So here are the Vision Zero cities. <clears throat> so um, a lot of cities will talk about being Vision Zero cities, or they'll, they'll talk about it, but they aren't actually in it. Um, Minneapolis, oftentimes I start looking to who are some of the peer cities that, you know, when we grow up we want to be like or has aspects that we want to be like. And Minneapolis is one. Chicago is one, San Francisco is one, I believe Oakland is one, Sacramento is one, Portland, Seattle, a lot of uh, Denver is one. The minimum standards um, is, sets a clear goal of eliminating traffic fatalities and severe injuries. Mayor is publicly officially committed to Vision Zero. Vision Zero plan or strategy is in place, and the mayor or is committed to doing so in a clear time frame in the key city department. So this is kind of a, a summary of the long bullets. But when you start looking at it this way, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's just an interesting type of um, framework. I uh, visited San Francisco last year. I'm actually from there, so I said I'm going to stop in their transportation department and see what they're doing. So on the left is uh, San Francisco's Vision Zero framework, and they have promotional um, materials. There it says 70% of San Francisco's severe and fatal traffic injuries occur on just 12% of the streets. Isn't that interesting? And they show the 12% of the streets too. And they, they tend to be in the tenderloin and sometimes they're in the um, areas of communities of color or underserved populations. Just kind of interesting. Striking. Yeah. It is striking. It is striking. Of all those streets, and so what they're doing is they are because they don't have winters and their pavement lasts forever, right? They are able to take their their uh, engineering, their street reconstruction program, and just funnel it towards these streets. We are going to make these streets safer, right? Uh, to the right is Denver. Uh, Den <clears throat> data can help identify disproportionate safety impacts. Um, if you read the 
statement underneath, 50% of Denver's traffic, traffic fatalities occur on just 5% of their streets. Just 5%. So if you think about that, could, could Denver address just those 5, 5%? Say, all right, we're going to devote the next, you know, a third of our SIP budget, you know, for the next five or ten years, and we're going we're gonna to get these five streets, five percent of the streets, and really work at, work at it. Um, this is Chicago. Uh, they don't actually have a, a catchy statement. I was hoping they would. But, yeah. <laughs> but those are the streets that they are focusing on. But if you look at all the streets that they have there, you know, you know they have, what, 31 priority streets. You can knock off 31 streets, right? You know, it's possible to do. Um, so we are not a Vision Zero a city. We might become one. We don't, I don't know. But I think we could start incorporating safety um, into both safety and our comprehensive plan into our, the programming of our street improvements. So the typical SIP, our capital improvement process in the CE um, in large portion is based on pavement needs and utility needs. You know, how, what's our pavement condition? Where do we need to replace our utilities? And then occasionally, I, I think TE will say um, we have a safety problem at a certain intersection right. and the like, and say, could we program a project that way? It's not not necessarily systematic, but that's kind of how it works. And, and in many ways, that's kind of how it has to work, right? We We're here in winter, and a lot of the Pavements that we drive on are in very poor condition. Right? So then it gets programmed in the in the SIP, and then the comp plan. If you look at the 2006 and 2012 comp plan, it doesn't really give strategic actions to do. It just says our policies are when we rebuild the street to provide bike accommodations. You know, so it's very policy driven. And so basically, as those projects are being built. The policies that were in the comp plan were basically integrated into the project, and it ended up in a construction project. And so perhaps an alternate way of looking at it would be to include, you know, the pavement needs, but could we also begin to use safety as a programming tool that some of our high, our highest crash intersections or something, we put them in the program. They can't be the whole program. We're not San Francisco. We have winters, right? But could they begin to be part of the program? And similarly, our comp plan right now is not policy-focused, but it's actually strategy and action-oriented. It, it basically, for the land use and transportation um, element, it has 11 strategies. And so could we start to integrate those strategies into our capital improvement program? And then include the utility needs. We program them in the SIP, and then, uh, and then we construct them. Um, Here's an example of um, some of the implementation plan for San Francisco. This is uh, more of a um, public, you know, more of a public type of document. Um, but it gives, you know, the two-year action items and the participating agencies. You know, it's just, a, it's just an interesting way of looking at your street system. So if we do a similar thing for Madison, these are um, intersection crashes. And so these are the crashes that are only occur in the intersection. So these do not include the approach areas. 
Okay, we might maybe modify this for an intersection approach. Do I, does everyone understand what an intersection approach is? Like the, the 100 or 200 feet as you approach an intersection um, often is, is considered in a, an intersection analysis because you'll rear end crashes, you know, that type of thing. Uh, this is solely basically from stop bar to stop bar to stop bar to stop bar. And is that because that's what our data captures right now? Well, that's how we've been doing it for the last um, several years. You know, we might change that approach. Uh, the MPO does it a little a slightly differently, and so we're thinking maybe we could come up with maybe a, a, a similar methodology for both the MPO and for us. But, but this is, uh, if you think about it, <clears throat> Um, a lot of your fatalities and your injuries are going to occur basically inside the intersection because those are going to be the angle crashes, right? The rear end crashes could result in injury, but they're, they're going to be less, um, less injury prone. But here you can see, you know, where our, our hotspots are. And some of them you can um, expect and you go, well, that's interesting, right? Yeah, you could see that. But others um, are perhaps... Uh, just strange. Like if you look over here on, um, I wonder if I can do this. I'm going to just. All right. On screen pointer and PowerPoint press control mouse click. Control mouse. Yay. Got it. Okay. So if you, you see that, you see that yellow dot? next to that yellow, or the red dot, I'm sorry. Right there, mm -hmm. right there, right there. Mm -hmm. That's a big red dot mm -hmm. at the intersection of Cottage Grove Road, and I think it's Acewood. Acewood yeah. What's going on there? Why do we have a big red dot at the intersection of Cottage Grove Road and Acewood? You know, it's just kind of interesting. You know, then you can go, everyone would think, well, Gammon Road, Gammon Road, and Mineral Point would have a lot of crashes, but then we got something right here. What's that big red dot there? Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's Grand Canyon. What's going on there? Yeah, so so you, so you start to see how um, it's just an interesting interesting thing. Um, so <clears throat> I think we're beginning to um, we've the traffic engineering has always release a, a traffic report, and it's always talked about uh, safety, fatalities, and the like. Um, the idea is, is that now, you know, we have a report. How do we integrate the results of that report? Maybe change them a little bit to reflect maybe some national practices, but how do we get the results of that report integrated into doing something about it? I mean, the information is great, but what what can we do to do something about it? Well, Tom, the last time the, the crash report came here, we just got numbers, mm -hmm. and we did ask um, folks to come back to us again and do an analysis of that, which, Yang, I think you're working on already, mm -hmm. um, to help us understand, you know, what safety issues are there and what can be done to address mm -hmm. those safety issues. So very much in line with what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and part of it is, too, is, is that, um, like, CE, they're putting together their capital budget, and... Um, I guess I'm new to the city, so I say, already? You know, yeah. <laughs> I need more. Engineering, by the way. Yeah. So I'm thinking, I need more time, you know. And so so 
I think the budget that you'll see perhaps this year, we would like to introduce the concept of programming some safety things, but it probably won't be full-blown until a year or two. So, Tom, the, uh, the graphic for Denver reminded me um, that we're doing a thing called Results Madison. Mm -hmm. And because I think that's the same software, it, seemed, it looks the same anyway. Um, but perhaps you're saying, what do we do with this data? Perhaps there's a way that if all the departments are already having to identify data points yeah. for their performance, for their six performance areas, yeah. that that's, that's an ongoing activity that could really be, you could do Vision Zero light through that process, perhaps, yeah. at least for data uh, gathering analysis. We could. I don't know. Did we put crashes as a performance measure for TE? I think so, yeah. Because we'd, like, yeah. we'd like to hold you responsible. Well, I know. That's the problem <laughs> with the whole thing is, you know, just that, that orientation. Well, actually, but I think it could be useful, uh, you know. What gets measured gets worked on. Right. Right? So what gets met? Okay, so now um, I'm going to give a shout-out to the MPO. The MPO did a pretty extensive crash analysis. I don't think they have the report isn't out, but a lot of the results are out. And they did the top high-crash severity intersections <clears throat> in the MPO region. And we have some um, MPO representatives here. So here you can see their... Um, their dots, uh, we, our dots and their dots don't match, so I'd like to <laughs> move them towards each other so that we, um, we build on each other's efforts rather than duplicate each other's efforts. But one thing that I think is actually pretty fascinating is this. What they did is uh, MPO um, um, enlisted the, the TOPS laboratory, and they asked them to determine the, the crash costs by type and severity, um, they looked at crashes from 2009 to 2016. I think they took out 17. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, they actually tracked them with um, to hospital records, so they linked them to hospital records. Wow. Yeah, and so they were able – actually, San Francisco does, did the same thing, and when they, San Francisco told me that that's what we did, they did, I said, man, we'll never do that because that would be way too hard. Well, Turns out, the MPO did. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, um, and so they're only able to um, um, link about 35 to 40 percent of them. But still, the sample size is just enormous when you have that many crashes over that many years over the state of Wisconsin. So um, it's one thing that's interesting is that as a biker, I don't. I want to know why a biker's life is worth less than a motor vehicle person's life, right? <laughs> So, um, but that's how they, um, your property's worth more <laughs> at the bottom. Oh yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I have, I have a, I have a very expensive bike, right? Or maybe I, I, uh, I really push the grill in on a, on a car, right? Yes. Tom, is this code's data? Yeah. This? Okay. So, um, so then uh, what they did is they um, they used a um, EPDO um, weighting EPDO property damage only right only okay and I have to look that up. 
Yeah. So uh, if you think of, of uh, a vehicle as property damage, let's say you hit a telephone pole or something, that's one, and you take those monetary values, how much is a fatal crash with a pedestrian worth? How much is a fatal crash with a cyclist work with a vehicle? And then you take all the crashes that you have and you weight them according to this rating scale. Okay, so that's a different way of, of looking at it. Rather than just saying, well, how many crashes does this intersection happen? You have how many, um, you know, you can tell that this really focuses on injuries and fatalities because the weighting is so high for those, right? And so we actually have, um, we've done that <clears throat> in, um, recently. Uh, we have, you know, this is, we have 11 pages of this, okay? Um, and you can see our highest crash ranking based on the EPDO ranking. Uh, North Southern Road and East Wash, that's not a surprise. Uh, North First Street in East Washington, um, that's perhaps maybe a surprise. You know, why is First Street? Yeah. Um, Highway 12 and Mill Pond Road, you know, right now this, um, this is, the area is gaining quite a bit of attention because of, there's some development proposals right there. That's number three, right? Campus Drive and Farley Avenue, you know. And so um, the little red numbers on the right indicate how those intersections are ranked according to the way we normally rank our intersections. So in the safety report, the way those intersections, where they are ranked is in red. Now, how they are ranked based on this weighting scale is shown right here. So you can see that they're different, right? Um, because this places a much higher value on the fatality and the serious injury. But maybe that's, you know, if, you were, if we were a vision zero city, that's how we would want to rank them, right? We would want to, um, because the idea is let's get rid of the fatalities, right? So, um, so then the next slide is just more of an informational slide, you know. <clears throat> you know, um, the CE budget uh, for 2019, this is the capital budget. They had um, $4.6 million for ped bike. For major streets, they had $78 million, of which um, $27.9 million were TIP projects. Those are projects that are involved with the MPO and getting some federal funding. Examples would be um, like County Highway M or University Avenue, or um, one at the point of the, the capital budget was included, Buckeye Road. Then we had $20 million in pavement management, about $22 million in street reconstruction. So, you know, we, we invest a lot in our streets, and so how do we prioritize all this money that we invest in our streets, and where does safety fit into that? And I can't tell you right now, but I'm just saying that you know, these are questions that I would like to start asking and seeing if we could move in this direction. So, Tom, could could you roll back that one? And I noticed um, with the red at the end. So way down at the bottom, <coughs> a, a general thing, how does 
Badger and Park get a one on yours and a 21 on theirs? What's the main thing that you were emphasizing that is not as emphasized on this one? I'll try and answer, and um, Yang maybe can correct me. I believe the ranking uh, in red, there's two factors. One is that the red represents one year, whereas this ranking represents five years. Okay. And um, oftentimes many uh, um, public agencies like to use a five-year rolling average because the sample size for one year is rather small, and also uh, a good winner or a bad winner can just kind of create perturbations, you know, oh, this was a great year, we must have done really good on safety, no, we just had 20 inches of snow instead of 60 inches of snow, you know. So a five-year average oftentimes um, provides a more rolling average. Provide, And then also, um, <clears throat> I think it is weighted for safety, but um, I believe um, Mark used uh, just some generic numbers from the um, USDOT that um, – don't reflect the the analysis that the top lab did. So, um, Bill, you could actually you could actually be giving this and schooling me. But um, so, the, what is a life worth, right? So, uh, so that, that yeah, it really doesn't have a weight. The reds don't have as much weighting toward the value of life as. That does. Yes. That's the basic answer. Yeah, okay. Correct. Yeah. And and data size. That's right. Yes. So this is one fifth of the data sample per on because uh, that's a five year rolling average, right? Correct. Okay. Right. right. So right. yeah. So that's Tavin Jiren did uh, in our report that we that uh, you know were presented in front of this commission last year. Uh, is that uh, uh, that's kind of required by city ordinance. So so we did uh, you know according to city ordinance format. Um, but, you know, doesn't mean uh, those are best ways to look at things, you know, as explained by, by Tom. Especially <laughs> if you want to focus on uh, fatalities and uh, serious injuries, uh, it definitely makes more sense to give uh, more weight to, to those type of crashes. You know, as Tom mentioned, the probably damage on the type of uh, injury, uh, type of crashes uh, might not be that critical. Uh, from that perspective, but the uh, the analysis and a report from you know traffic engineering staff that's uh, done uh, because city ordinance required that way. Uh, but again, you know that's something that maybe you can look into as well. Maybe city ordinance can be modified and uh, reflect uh, you know the, the new direction you want to go. So just uh, one follow. Could you do yep. this and pull out the B's and just have the K and A's? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah. Is that? I mean, not mm-hmm. that I'm diminishing mm-hmm. a non-incapacitating injury, but I, my guess is mm-hmm. the severity stuff is hugely different. Um, Correct. Based on yeah. a, a B doesn't get nearly as much as the K's and A's, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, guess I would just say so along those lines, the the type of injury resulting from a crash or, or more specifically, I guess, an accident, um, regardless of the outcome, the engineering solution could be one that could help with all the way across the board. So I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't want to discount 
uh, you know, non-incapacitating injuries, particularly considering that, you know, this is only reported injuries. And I'm assuming, and I guess I don't know at the city level, is this, are these, do you guys also use like the MV4000 and that form? Mm-hmm. And that's where you get the data from? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the fact that maybe since that's been redone and it has more robust information, um, it might be an opportunity to look at updating the whatever it is the model in the city ordinance um, and that mm-hmm. may be something that could help bring kind of the safety and the engineering together with this mm-hmm. since um, you know that's mm-hmm. sort of what's happening at the state level mm-hmm. so yeah. I think a difference if I'm remembering our own crash reports correctly that traffic volumes are a big factor in how we rank. So if you go back to the uh, that ranking list, so that if you can go, yeah, so that you know, 14 injuries at Park and Badger is a lot more significant than 17 at Stoughton and Buckeye, just because of the traffic volumes. Because they're per volume, the crashes are happening more frequently, and yeah. I. That's weighs heavily in yeah. in our yeah. analysis. There's yeah, our company's talking about you know crash rates that right. we do. Mm-hmm. So we yeah, yeah, we rank based on those as well. Yeah. So the, the MPO, um, <clears throat> I didn't put a slide in for the alternate anyway. So the MPO also came up with a. So this is one way of ranking them using the EDPO, and I think it's probably most consistent with Vision Zero. But there is another way of ranking and. Um, where you take um, uh, is it you take the crash frequency, the crash rate, and the injuries, and you just give them equal weighting, and then you rank them in that. Did I say that correctly? Yep. So um, that's an alternate way, and they uh, have a report um, or a ranking that could go out that way too. And so it, it um, so let's say a low volume intersection that has two crashes might not show up on that, but because it has a high crash frequency because they're low volume, it, it could show up. Yeah, I think also Bridget brought, brought up a really good point. It's about the, uh, not only about the numbers, but about the information from the, the, yeah, the, the form, <laughs> the report form, which contains a lot of information that uh, sometimes you, can, you cannot get a you know, good understanding uh, just looking at the numbers, but really dives into each crash, look at what happened and uh, under what condition it happened. That actually help a lot to identify countermeasures. So, uh, so we typically do uh, traditionally do you know rank every year, but we do when we talk about when we look into those, we do have a you know ranking for the previous years in comparison as well, so we can see the trend across five or more years. And for each year, we look into individual crashes and have someone really analyze it, do a crash diagram, and see what happens and what can be done. Um, so we are in that process right now for the 2017 crash. Um, so we also included, for this time, we also included the uh, police department and also city engineering in the discussion, uh, as recommended by this commission. That's a really good one. Um, so we'll bring back you know, some updates um, you know, future meeting once we've done that process. Mm-hmm. And just one last thing. Okay, so uh, statewide, uh, kind of one of the, the most common reported injury and 
my field is bike ped stuff, so that's what I know. It, it, and I'm curious to know if it's consistent in Madison that left turn um, with oncoming is kind of the most common crash type, particularly involving bicyclists. Do you guys know offhand? Uh, I don't know. That is, if you read all the literature, particularly um, left turn um, with a, a sidewalk type of situation. So uh, you're making a left turn and a cyclist is going the similar direction as you. Um, that's on a sidewalk. Um, I think it's, it's that's why, um, yes. Did I, <laughs> did I answer that? That's the most dangerous type of uh, uh, bike riding is uh, on sidewalk by going to kind of operate direction of the, of the traffic so that, uh, you know, turning vehicles would not be able to see, uh, see the bikes very well. So in what I, from what I recall, um, and I guess it's been a couple of years, but uh, this was even just with oncoming in uh, lanes of traffic, mm-hmm. not sidewalk, um, just not seeing bicyclists and not, uh, not having the engineering at the intersection to, um, I guess, facilitate looking for that other kind of traffic that may be turning. We're going straight where you're turning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think safety has been a, a consistent theme in all of our discussions as we've looked at reports when we've talked about mm-hmm. neighbor uh, neighborhood traffic management, when we looked at the annual crash reports. So we were talking about roundabouts and how people don't like them, but they are, might actually be safer if the space is there to use them. So. It seems like we have safety as a theme in a lot of our discussions, but you're saying that it, it should just it should always be top of mind whenever we're considering any project is the vision zero. Well, it, it's it's more. I think it. Um, I'm going to go back to this. Mm-hmm. I think any project, you know, um, TE is always you know does input on safety and mm-hmm. then. Anything that CE does, they are considering safety as they design it. Mm-hmm. But safety is not necessarily driving the allocation of resources mm-hmm. right now. So safety is considered in everything. It's like this permeable backdrop, but it's not driving the allocation of resources. Mm-hmm. If we were a Vision Zero city, it would start to drive the allocation of resources. Other comments or questions for Tom? Really uh, very helpful. I do actually have one other question, too, to make sure that I'm understanding this. Um, since it seems like a lot of it is driven by the EPDO weight for how to allocate those resources better. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this, this is, we, we've been talking about it as, like, the value of, a human life, but it, are we understanding correctly that this is linked to medical cost codes? So this is actually the physical dollars spent for each of these cases? Yeah. Actually, you know what? <clears throat> we have a member of the MPO in the audience right now <laughs> who is in charge of this this project. And I think uh, three minutes of her time would be would, – would you be willing to come up for three minutes? Just, um, my question was, is, are these actual, does this, um, you could introduce yourself and understanding correctly the EPDO weighting methodology, it's kind of driven off of the cost 
her incident. Correct. Could we ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Colleen Hosley. I'm a transportation planner with the Madison Area Transportation Planning Board. Okay. So we're saying it's not necessarily a value as much as it's literally the cost of the incident. Correct. And where it involves a fatality, the costs are obviously much, much, much higher. Much greater, specifically yep. as it relates to health care, hospital expenditures. Yep. And, it, I mean, and included in um, some of these weights, too, is so it's not just hospital, it's loss of income from being unable to work, it's quality of life, so it takes into account those costs as well. And then there's a you said there's a quality of life rating also so so that yeah those costs and um, I know that was the cost that the um, top sub worked on developing and I believe um, that the more so the the quality of life costs come out of um, some of the highway safety manual information. Okay, and then how does that translate to this EPDO? So those are included into that cost. So that cost that you see there takes into account. Um, the medical costs, it takes into account the, again, like the, the loss of income, loss of being able to work, um, and some of the other, yeah, cost of uh, living. So, and, you know, and then all those compared to the, you know, property damage only type. So you said, you know, base for property only damage crash as a one. And based on how much more, the other type of crash is a cost, so you know assign number that way. For example, okay. some this of the number mm -hmm. by this number. correct, yeah. Okay. So basically, you got a get a weight. You'll weight, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, so it's a way to put, you know, to to evenly look at all these crashes and have it in one unit of analysis, um, so that you can compare all the different types of crashes together. Okay, got it. Thank you. Other questions, as long as we have an expert here. <laughs> Thank you. Other comments or questions? Very, very interesting. So you, you think this is something that we might? I'd like to. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to. We have to introduce it to the board and then see if policymakers are interested in um, moving in this direction. Okay. And it sounds like there might uh, be a discussion about potentially changing the ordinance. That would be something that would go to the Transportation Policy and Planning Board, too, as well, right? Mm -hmm. Other comments or questions from the group? Okay, thanks. Very, uh, very interesting. Okay, next we have uh, Chuck and Nancy, the financial impact of family, family care. been asked back to give an analysis or a comparison of how uh, paratransit approached 2018 when with the implementation of family care by the state 
uh, how we approach going into that year and preparing the budget for the year and then how we ended up. So that's what this presentation is. And uh, so we're going to talk uh, a little bit about just, just uh, I think I presented uh, to the joint uh, board and commission to talk a little bit about what, what was happening with family care and, and broadly the impact on paratransit. But just a reminder, um, in 2018, uh, the state implemented family care for Dane County. We're one of the very last counties to get this model of long-term care services. And prior to this, it was uh, Dane County that was administering the long-term care program. And uh, because of that, um, severing of that or, or restructuring of the way that the state wanted to handle delivery of long-term care or administration of long-term care services, that long-standing relationship that we had with uh, Dane County for cost sharing ended in uh, 2018. So um, by losing that agreement, um, we knew that that assured revenue source of about $3.9 would be eliminated. So we're going to look at a little bit of the uh, before and after data uh, and how we approached the issue. Uh, both, and we will see ridership numbers and some financial data. So we did convene um, and work for a year's time period with a committee, uh, an ad hoc committee that was looking specifically at funding, understanding the MA waiver funding, and um, the, any policy decisions that might be contemplated uh, to prepare for this. So we met over a one-year period, and the outcome of that was to come up with a series of tools that we might use in preparing the budget, and they addressed fares and service levels. Um, and then um, we, we got into the weeds very much um, this ad hoc committee, and uh, one of the very detailed pieces of information that we provided was we did some financial projections, and this is just one of the financial projections that we laid out. There were five different scenarios from um, very dire to very positive, and this actually happened to be the middle of the road um, scenario. And if you look at the bottom of it, these were the assumptions that we made. We assumed that we would lose all of that Medicaid funding and that um, we would retain uh, half of those um, Medicaid waiver rides, um, about 100,000 rides. So our ridership would drop by about a third is what our prediction was. So we'd lose all those um, Medicaid waiver riders, reduce our contracted service, and then, um, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. So that's how we began or ended our work with um, that ad hoc committee. So that was the scenario we, we moved forward with. So um, 
the work of that ad hoc committee ended, and uh, paratransit then proposed from that set of tools we had available to us some um, proposed fare and service changes. So those are the four recommendations that we had, increasing the fare, having a cash-only fare or an agency <coughs> ticket, elimination of our leave attended service, and primarily offering curb-to-curb um, -curb service rather than door-to-door. Um, -door. None of those have been implemented. Correct. None of those were implemented. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is, again, how we uh, approached, uh, uh, we offered these proposals, mm -hmm. and, and again, none of them were, were, moved, were advanced. Uh, they, they didn't get approval to move forward on. So then we actually came to the budget development phase, and now here we go. We don't know what ridership is going to be, but we guessed. We didn't know what revenue would be, but we guessed. And so we prepared a capital budget um, which had no vehicle purchase, and, and at this point in time, we were up for um, replacement of our directly operated vehicles. They were beyond their useful life, and so this was the time we would have made that purchase. So we did not put that in the budget. And then for the operating budget with no vehicles, of course, then we had um, included no um, directly operated service in the budget. That actually ended in August, is that correct? Yes, we, we phased out um, the service with our directly operated. The, a lot of it ended in April, but we hung on to a little bit of it to make it through that, that family care transition period, which um, finalized in May. So we kept the last of our drivers and vehicles um, into August, yeah. just early August is when it ended. So then um, let's back up and take a look at our ridership trend over the five-year period before uh, implementation of family care, and you can see it was a pretty steady growth over time. So nearly 300,000 or 290,000 was the 2017 number. And then um, I, you've seen this before. Uh, I've added percentages um, on it, but this is really the comparison between the ridership 2017 to 2018 by month and again, the implementation periods for the family care transition were February, March, April, and May. And in each one of those months, there were some people coming off that Dane County administered Medicaid program, that long-term support program, into the family care or IRIS or family care model that they selected. So little by little, we were seeing um, them making that transition. Nancy, can you go back a slide, please? Sure. So I was wondering why you didn't keep on through 2018, and then I looked at the numbers on the slide that you just covered, and 2018 was 154, 930, so it was, like, not even on, mm -hmm. not even on this graph. Correct. So when you look at at the drop, it... Uh, it's significant. Yeah, yeah, so if you would have tried to chart it, it would have been, yeah. like extremely dramatic because it would have been like down off the page, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
So uh, then we go on to a look at the funding. And what I'm showing here first, um, if we think back to that, that table with all the data on it uh, that the, the ad hoc committee ended with, um, these are the same numbers. This is, um, let me see. Well, this actually, this is fun. this is a comparison of year over year. So 17, this was the actual funding we received in uh, 2017. If we start at the top of the pie chart, the 3% is fares, then 6% is paratransit, state paratransit aid. And then we come with the, to the big one, the 47% um, is the Medicaid waiver funding that we were getting, that we did receive in 2017, and it goes on from there. Um, so then I have to do these fast. Keep in your mind now that 47%, and we see that 47% is now down to 11%. So that's that Medicaid waiver funding. And the fares went from 3% to 26%. Is that agency ticket? Primarily, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and the 11% that we have did get in um, Medicaid funding uh, because there was a transition period. Mm -hmm. And initially, we had thought, oh, yeah, we're not going to get anything from Medicaid funding. But in fact, we did because they didn't completely fade away until May 1st when they made the transition. So there was still some county um, money coming in um, through that time period. Then um, what I have here now are comparisons for 2018. The first, the 2018 estimate, is really that look before we even develop the budget. It was how the that ad hoc committee ended. So if you um, the totals there reflect that. That's how we thought we might go into 2018. And then the second set of numbers, uh, the 2018 budget. This is where we actually um, uh, put forward our our best guess at. Uh, with budget submittal, and then on the right are the actual numbers, um, both revenue and expense. And then um, this, I think, was um, your primary question. Uh, this slide shows the ridership decreased by 23%, and this is, again, how we, um, what our actual numbers were compared to what we put in budget. So we had a decrease of ridership of 23%. So um, I, I believe we thought we would drop by about a third, and we ended up with a 47% reduction when we look at year over year, 2017 to 2018. Our expenses were decreased by 15% uh, and revenue by 6%. The overall budget ended with a deficit of 152000 But going into the year, this is um, uh, 
actually the fear of the loss of the 3.9 million this looks fairly um, fairly good in comparison to that. So, so the original estimate was a negative million two, and yeah. you ended up at a negative 152. And yeah. what was the primary reason? Do you think the ridership was less of a decrease? We part of it. Ridership was decreased. Um, our revenue from agency fares was a factor, and of course, um, we did we eliminated the, the purchase of the vehicles mm -hmm. and and our directly operated service. And and how? Just remind. Sorry, I'm. Mm -hmm. I, Banker financial brain had lots of questions. So the agency tickets, it was a big number. Can you remind me what that number was? What you thought it would be versus what it was? Because it was a huge difference, if I we, remember. Yeah, we actually, I think it's, it's correct to say that when the ad hoc committee was working on ideas about how to approach this issue of family care, we didn't have in our minds a solution for folks that would sign up for the IRIS program because you're dealing when you're, the IRIS program really allows an individual to contract with whoever it is that they want to and the concept of working individual by individual to come to a resolution for their needs we kind of didn't have that in our mind and we focus a lot on solutions that would work with family care agencies, which are managed care organizations, and we could work with an agency that represents a lot of individuals rather than individual by individual. Bottom line is we didn't, we didn't really have a concept that we could get from the IRIS side of the house um, the revenue that we did. <clears throat> we ended up, uh, after the work with the ad hoc group ended, um, there was a lot of effort that I put into working with the IRIS agencies and family care agencies as well. But I think the big benefit that we got um, out of those negotiations, particularly on the IRIS side, is we had each IRIS agency represented, and there were four of them, and each fiscal agent that works with IRIS participants there as well, and the state was a participant. So it was a meeting much like this. Uh, that's how those negotiations went with the uh, IRIS folks. So most of that agency revenue has come in that manner through IRIS. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars. How yes. Do we know uh, approximately how much that was? I just asked Wayne. I'm Chuck Camp with Metro Transit. Yeah. We had about $50,000 that we had in agency ticket revenues in 2017, mm -hmm. and we budgeted about that amount for 2018, and we came in at $1.2 million in family care agency revenues. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's part of what I was hoping to get out of this was what, 
what caused you to be so much more successful? And this is a great story in terms of how you managed it, but I think those agency fees was huge. And I would answer that. Nancy's very humble. Yeah. Nancy's building relationships there's a chair for you back. with the agency. Chuck, there's a chair for you there. It's good to work on my knees here. <laughs> but really, it was Nancy building those relationships. As we talked to other transit systems that implemented, they didn't have the success in increasing their agency fare uh, revenue increase. So we, we felt conservatively that we weren't going to see a significant increase, and we yeah. did. Yeah. I, I think I would add to that um, – the state certainly uh, put out there to the folks that they were working with, uh, Iris and Family Care, that uh, transportation was a priority in Dane County, and they made it those agencies' priorities as well. And so they were very motivated to be at the table with us and to make that transition run very smoothly. And, of course, Transportation was just one aspect of all of the changes that individuals that are getting these long-term care services had to grapple with. Mm -hmm. And so the, the concept was try to make that uh, flow as easily as possible mm -hmm. and not make it an issue. So, so everyone was motivated to be there. And it was very helpful to have the state at the table as well. I have one more slide here. Just a second. Rebecca, did you have a question? No, you can do your last slide. No. Okay. Um, the last one is really the to, to put it in, in context, um, just like on that ridership chart, you said it would be hard to see if you put 2018 on the ridership. Well, here, here are the numbers when we compare 18 uh, um, to 17, and you can see ridership decreased by 47%. Um, and then expenses decreased by 32, revenue decreased by 34 overall. Rebecca? So I'd be interested in seeing the act the real numbers behind these graphs. Mm -hmm. um, Chuck, you just made reference to the, you said we had 50,000 in agency fares in 2017. So, but 3% of 9,793. 759 is 293,812. So is that other um, 243,000 just regular fares? Right, uh, convenience tickets con primarily. Conven so convenience right. tickets are in here. Right. And so we have we've added another like 500,000 convenience tickets. Uh, also. Convenience went up. I don't know if Wayne remembers how much that. Oh, it went they went down. down. Right. So, so the, the driving force in the uh, the fare increase was ticket agency fares or yeah. agency fares. That's 1.73 million, not 1.2 million. Okay. That's, Nancy, could you go I back? I mean, from, that's why I want to see the hard numbers behind this sure. graph because that's what – We'll we'll have that in the packet out. next time. Yeah, I, Rebecca, if we if we look at, at that, so what did you so – No, I'm looking at the real numbers from – 17 and the real numbers from 18, yeah. not the projections. Okay. I was trying to understand what we – we had been told that they were going to lose that million, too, and then it was only, uh, you know, 150-something, I think. Right, but that million, too, as Nancy said, 
was the at the end of the ad hoc committee, it left us 1.2 million short. Correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne or Nancy. And that's where to balance our budget, we eliminated directly operated paratransit services to get to that final 1.2 million. Yeah, but then you said we budgeted you budgeted 50,000 in agency ticket sales, but this says 510,000. Is that a comp, is the same number or not? That says ticket sales, which includes convenience tickets. It does, okay. And agency fares. Gotcha. Right. Yes. And the unlimited ride path. Right. Gotcha. And you outperformed that by 500%. Right. Yeah. So another. So we'll get those real numbers. In other words, we'll give you these pie charts and we'll put the numbers in there. Yeah, so because we'll the percentages of different total numbers are a little bit. Side by side, because that will show the different right. actual revenue. Yes. Yeah. Our graph side by side. Because it looks like state aids went up by 9%, but they only went up by like a hundred and something thousand dollars, which isn't that. Well, and, right. and one of the things to yeah, highlight here yeah. right. that we haven't said yet is we have not had our 2018 audit yet. Baker Tilly comes in next week. Okay. Super exciting. So there are. Isn't that exciting? It is. I love reading that report. I know. I do. <laughs> we have a meeting set up to talk about allocation. So let me give you some samples of, from a layperson's perspective, Wayne can make it more precisely stated. <clears throat> Agency fare tickets is an allocation that goes to paratransit. Plain and simple, black and white, no ambiguity. When we get general state paratransit funding, or excuse me, general state transit aids listed up there, 85.20, 2 million. That is a projection that's not a black and white number for Dave Schmidtke, Wisconsin DOT. They're looking at us at 2 million O'Toole. That's Wayne saying, we got this much money. Here's how much we're spending on fixer, how much we're spending on paratransit. I'm going to allocate it this way. And then actual paratransit costs come in. Well, then we're looking at that number a little differently than agency fare ticket revenues. There's also a separate state aid for paratransit only, 85205. That goes directly black and white to paratransit. Mm -hmm. Some of these, I once had an economist on a committee like this who had to explain this to me because I was confused. Said, Chuck, some of these categories are Fungible. Mm -hmm. That was the word they used. Yeah, it would be mm -hmm. nice to know which the difference. So real quick, cash fares, black and white. Yeah. Ticket sales, black and white. Mm -hmm. Unlimited ride past revenue, black and white. 85205, black and white. County MA waiver in the past, black and white. Mm -hmm. Federal 5307, uh, fungible. So that's why all of the allocated ones allocated. 8520 transit age. Mm -hmm. Fungible. Mm -hmm. Allocated partner investment. Fungible. Mm -hmm. Fitchburg and, and, and others don't say, oh, we're going to give you this much for fixed route and paratransit. No. We have a cost per hour of all of our services. And then Wayne, our CPA guy, mm -hmm. has to allocate that based on generally accepted accounting principles that make sense. And then Baker Tilly comes in. This is where I actually agree with Rebecca. It's kind of exciting when we ask that question. They explain where we're right. Oh, no, you overlook something. Mm -hmm. So if when we review this with our auditors, there's some changes to these, we will share that, too, 
with you. So I want to emphasize this is pre-audit. So the reduction of $700,000 in city general fund contributions. That's fungible. Is not a real number. It's just what filled in. It's just how Wayne filled in the rest of the pie chart, basically. I would do it as a little differently. The amount of city, state, and federal funding is a real number. How we allocate it is fungible. But, but I mean, in this, in these yes, graphs, those are estimates. I, so this $700,000 reduction was not a policy decision right, made by right. anyone. It's an allocation based it's on an reality. allocation based on what these other right. non-fungible items are doing. Based on ridership and real expenses. Right. Expenses is a real number. Right. Which is why it's been so difficult for you to answer the question every time we've, it is. we've said it's how fun much. to try yeah but i don't want to yeah. convey to you mm-hmm. that you are talking to three auditors that have sorted through this and this is black and white scientific numbers no yeah. this is us continuing to manage a very volatile change and it affects everything from ridership to the pre-audited numbers it affects everything yeah so when we when we hear complaints from riders about the um the reduction in quality of paratransit service, which we are hearing. I'm sure you're hearing. Um, I'm hearing from constituents. I heard from another alder about their constituents who wanted me to bring, say that those exist. And if they looked at this graph, they might say, well, the city's not, you know, is reducing their funding by $700,000 and they're not. Correct. So the answer to that needs to be more full-bodied and, um, That's why I came I up like to this to table to be candid with you thank because you. we've been discussing this saying these are not settled numbers. We need to bring up here that this is pre-audit numbers. So right. You're right, full-bodied. Al- but also, you know, their decision, because Metro operates pan- paratransit and Metro, and, the, and a lot of these numbers are fungible based on expenses of both of those services, there potentially are some changes in services that could be made or not, based on expenses and, and budget. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's Fair complex, point. Yep. right? Yep. But there are some d- decision points that happen. Okay, thank you. No, thank really, you. Nancy, really appreciate yes. you yeah. coming back again and doing all this work. Uh, and so, excellent. And go ahead, Carl. Before, before everybody leaves the table, we've been analyzing a lot of the changes in re- the revenue streams. Since the end of uh, since the implementation of family care, I just wanted to ask something about uh, the expenses side, not just the revenue side, and it may be relevant to uh, <clears throat> what Rebecca was just saying about quality of service complaints. Is that while this is all happening, as <clears throat> Nancy mentioned, we also did not replace the uh, fleet of directly operated paratransit buses <clears throat> having to do mainly with the change in federal money, as I understand it, that was available, that normally would help pay for capital costs of that nature. And in doing that, <clears throat> as I recall, that <clears throat> took away how we had been providing about 20% of all paratransit rides. I think at the end, <clears throat> directly operated buses were at about one-fifth. So I have two things about that to say, or one's a question. First is, the directly operated buses were staffed 
and driven by uh, city employees mm-hmm. from Metro, who, <clears throat> because they were an organized labor force, they had a better pay scale and uh, more benefits than <clears throat> what is available to the employees of the subcontractors who picked up that 20% of the work. <clears throat> so I'm wondering <clears throat> if, and it wasn't a, an anti-union move on the part of Metro to, to cause this loss. It had to do with the unavailability of uh, the federal capital money to keep it going. <clears throat> if that reduction in employee pay and benefits has had a measurable impact on the reduction of expenses to operate paratransit because the per ride cost through a subcontractor, and maybe Wayne has the numbers, maybe not, is no doubt less than it would have been through uh, the directly operated buses. So since that 20% of the rides being delivered moved over to subcontractors, because that might have had an impact on the expense line. And the other part that stems from that, I hadn't thought of so much, but Rebecca brought it up, uh, the increasing complaints about quality of service may be related to uh, the difference between what some of the subcontractors are able to perform compared to what the city was doing itself. Any, any reaction to either one of those with with Wayne here to help? Well, I think we'll, we'll get those uh, costs per ride. We'd probably wait until we had the audited numbers mm-hmm. to rely on, on, on that. Um, with regard to the quality of service, yeah, it does become a bit of a challenge, and, and the, the tools that we have to use, we're trying to hone those and, and get a better handle on it. And uh, as I prepare for next year, I'm, I'm already looking ahead um, as to how to use the tools we have right now and any changes we might want to make in a subsequent contract. Uh, we have another year on our contract with these providers. That'll be ending in June of next year. So this is the time period when I'm beginning to look at what that new service contract might look at look, look like. So I'm in, in the development of that. And certainly one of the things that I consider is how to beef up the quality of the service. I think it's closer to the renewal time of the existing contracts and maybe opening up to new providers. If this commission is somehow involved, <clears throat> I think that would be helpful because mm-hmm. we have maybe our ears to the ground regarding yeah. um, what's happening with some of the, some of the providers. And across the board, my observation is that the quality of performance of the contract is not even across the board. Mm-hmm. And the, the audit results will show by provider cost. By provider, it won't just be lumped um, together? Well, well you're, you're able to, to get that information? Okay. Okay. So, Rebecca, before you leave, so you want to see the actual numbers and yeah. the pie charts yes. rather than just the percentages. Okay? Right. And I'm sorry, I have to go to yep. the meeting across the hall. Yep. We don't have to go far, at least. I'll take your seat and we'll yeah. 
So Chuck, so it sounds like Rebecca wanted follow-up so that we could, and you know, whether you do a bar chart, which might be a good way to show those actual costs so that we can yep. see 2017 versus 2018. Well, I think whenever you have such a change in revenue from year to year, mm -hmm. doing a percentage, like my guess is probably three to four of those eight categories, nothing changed. But because others' revenues went down, they went from 10% to 15%, right. but they didn't really change. You know, And so that's a little bit easier to see when you have bar charts than it is when you have a pie chart. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So let me see if I'm summarizing this correctly as I look at my um, finance manager. <laughs> After the audit, you would like to see the 2018 actual expenses and revenues for paratransit and you would like to compare it to 2017 or the 2018 budget or 2017 actual numbers mm -hmm. yeah 17 okay so we'll compare 2018 actual audited numbers by the categories listed in these charts the right. different revenue categories and the expenses and then you've also asked to separate out the in-house paratransit expenses versus the contracted paratransit expenses. Did I hear that? Because I want to answer very directly what Carl said. Correct. The average cost per ride for in-house paratransit is more yes. than it is contracted. And I forget if uh, former Commissioner Ken Golden said this. One of his goals for wanting to keep directly operated is that a transit system should always have some paratransit services in-house so that we have that benchmark to look at when we're looking at complaints per 10,000 rides, on-time performance, and other customer input that Nancy's starting to work on, that we get that data a little bit more thoroughly for you for our contracted providers. So I just want to reflect that uh, statement that former commissioner, I, I wish we had that. We don't have it right now, as uh, Carl said. It's directly related to not having sufficient federal funds. As Tom has pointed out to you, we are now getting uh, work on Oscar Mayer. That's all city funding. We're now getting buses that used to be 80% federally funded. They are going to 50% and even lower, 30% federal funding. We are relying to a greater extent, like the police department, the fire department, the streets department, everybody else, we are relying on all city funding for our capital needs until we find a new alternative source for funding. But we will give you those numbers after we do the audit, if that sounds like what you're asking for. And, and I think part of what's uh, at the bottom of that is what Carl and Rebecca talked about, and that is, and we heard it at the public hearing that we had in October of 2017 about paratransit, where people said that the directly operated service they felt they got better service on the rides than from the contractors. And that was a, right. one of the themes that we heard. Right. And this may be part of, of why that, why that. Anecdotally, there seems to be the consensus. I don't right. know. I've worked with Carl for 13 years and I think you've pretty consistently explained to me yeah. uh, about that since you're yeah. uh, very close to it. And, and that's what I've heard from others anecdotally. And we're going to try to get that data so that mm -hmm. we know how our contractors are performing more than what we've given you in the past regarding on-time performance and complaints. Can I ask one more question? Sure. Um, 
I'm also curious just about the the proposed fare increase, um, how that was arrived at, and I don't know if, if that's something you know off the top of your head or sure. what the impacts of that might be. Sure. The, um, under the ADA, we're allowed to set a fare that is no more than twice the base fare of our fixed route service. So if we have a fare of $2, we could go up to 4 our current paratransit fare is $3.25, so we're not up to that limit. And the proposal was to bring it up to that, that maximum amount. Is there any analysis as to how that might affect revenues in terms of decreasing ridership? Um, I can't remember to what extent we spent a lot of time. Well, we talked about this a lot. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember the, the specific analysis. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So I think the primary goal with uh, proposing the increase to $4 was because we fully expected, well, we, we <laughs> hoped it wouldn't happen, and it didn't, that half of those riders who were, were being funded with MA waiver money, <clears throat> which because of the funding formula that, that was used, we were getting about 20 bucks per ride okay. for each one of those rides that were taken within, for an MA waiver client. And we were thinking that what's going to happen is those half those people are going to just buy regular paratransit tickets at $3.25 mm-hmm. per ride. Okay. And thereby is where we come up with our Armageddon, you know, you know, uh, what we were expecting. Um, We had no idea if that would happen and what did happen. And so if you look at our budget for cash fares, you can you'd see that it increased an, an incredible amount because we were expecting all these people to come and take 100,000 rides and pay $4 per ride for it if we got the fare increase. Whereas in reality, most of those rides disappeared. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, not most of them. You know, we, we expected to lose half of the MA waiver rides. We probably lost significantly more than that. Well, I know we, we lost significantly more than that. And the ones that we kept were paying us $33.75 per ride. So we essentially were doing much better with those rides that we retained than we had been with MA waiver. The other piece is that the people who we did have riding paratransit, getting paratransit service that were not part of the MA waiver program, we got them still. That didn't change. Nobody seems to have migrated over and said, Oh, you know, since I'm not going to get a pay for MA waiver, I'm just going to buy a regular paratransit ticket for $3.25. That doesn't seem to have happened at all. The ridership of just regular riders seems to have stayed the same. It actually went down a little bit. Like I said, the sales of regular paratransit tickets is lower in 2018 than it was in 2017. I mean, so that's kind of the dynamics of why we did better is because we lost more MA waiver rights than we anticipated. None of them ended up only getting uh, 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 rights for $3.25. The ones that we kept all went up to 30, you know, increased dramatically. Okay. So I don't know if that answers your question because I kind of lost track of what I was yeah. driving at. 
But I will say, as one person in the budget process, it is generally the case in in public transportation that um, paratransit fares are less sensitive to fare increases than fixed route. And stating it candidly, you have uh, passengers that are relying on paratransit with limited options. So going from 325 to $4 from an analysis standpoint, we would not predict that to cause much of any decrease in ridership. Or fixed route, it, it would cause an impact. We had a robust debate just how much uh, that impact would be 10 years ago, but uh, paratransit would be a small decrease in ridership. I will say, and I know it's, I'm sure, outside of the purview of, of your service, but it makes me wonder, so the, the lost ridership that was not replaced, those folks who, you know, what happened to those folks? I mean, why, you know, are, are they are they not making doctor's appointments? Are they not no, what, as what, mobile? What happened in a, in a large measure was, those individuals that signed up for family care and work with a managed care organization, they quickly came onto the program, transitioned, and then very quickly canceled all their rides with us um, because that managed care organization was now telling them, you're going to ride with this service. Okay. And they found transportation at a lower price point. Okay. So they were able to meet that need elsewhere. Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, very, very good information. Thank you guys very much for bringing it forward. The fact that we want to see more is a reflection of the excellent information you provided us. It's a hot topic that we've all been very interested in, and you guys did an excellent job. I mean, the, as I understand your conversations, other um, other folks did not do as well with retaining agency tickets sales at the um, the higher price, and that was a significant problem that other folks saw. So really good job in that regard. Made a huge financial difference. So other comments or questions? If I could, I, I, I'm not sure that I quite grasp what it is that you're looking for in addition to what we had tonight. So I don't know if maybe you guys feel more comfortable with the concept, but I mean, you know, the, the whole discussion of, of allocations gets me nervous at times because yeah. it is a very, you know, yeah. accounting's not a precise science. Yeah. So what I would suggest that, so. is we're, the three of us are going to put together a plan in, and I'll discuss and say, okay, is I this what a lot you of notes, so and I'm and pretty if it's sure not, I understand. You can tweak it. Otherwise, it will add easily an hour before all of us <laughs> are exactly. Yeah. No, I'll I'll save my notes and and we'll talk about it. So I I don't think it'll be bad, Wayne. I think you've got the information that's needed. Okay, I could talk about this for days. Okay. But he won't. Fascinating stuff. Tom is getting out his hook, so that means we've been here too long. <laughs> ready for hooking. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank you very much, Wayne, for coming. And Chuck, thank you as always. Okay, next uh, report from the Special Rules Subcommittee. Since Rebecca had to leave and Gary wasn't able to be here tonight, that would be me. <laughs> and then Yang and Patrick and anybody else who was there as well. Uh, we met on Monday, uh, the 25th, and we, re we reviewed a partial draft of the uh, Transportation Commission Handbook. Uh, 
a significantly uh, the draft was significant. It was there was just one section that um, that that wasn't um, that John wasn't able to provide us before before he had to leave. Uh, we're working on a user friendly handbook uh, with links to the ordinances and other resources with a with a thought process that will try and keep it shorter in length and then just point you to the Transportation Department Ordinance or the Transportation Commission Ordinance so that you can uh, find it easily using a link, uh, but we don't actually quote it verbatim uh, within this document. Uh, we're working on a, on a place, and user-friendly, we're trying hard to be user-friendly um, with it as well. Uh, we're working um, on a, a place to store resources on uh, the city's website made some progress in that regard, which was which was great, um, and think that we might have a, a place for it. And we'll talk more about this at our next meeting, which we have scheduled for Friday, April 12th. Uh, so that's, that's part of the issue. Instead of you having to search, so this Vision Zero presentation, great presentation, something we might want to reference in the future when somebody talks about Vision Zero. It's like, what was that again? So we would put that on the website. So you wouldn't have to go, oh, that was on March 27th, so I have to go into Legistar and find it. So we're going to make those resources more user-friendly for everybody as well. Um, we're, you saw a draft of the handbook. Uh, Bridget, you probably haven't seen it yet, but uh, when we approved the special rules, you saw the different categories that we were going to talk about. Well, we decided to add one on training. Everybody has been very, very interested in training. Um, and we're going to have uh, the new member orientation and training, and then we'll have an annual refresher training. So uh, in the new member orientation training, we'll certainly talk about the ordinances, uh, whether it be transportation ordinances, boards, committees, and commissions, uh, open meetings, Robert's rules, um, how to navigate Legistar. I'm like, wow, there's training on that? That would be so great because, you know, Legistar is complicated. Um, so that's, that's another piece that we'll have to work on. Something that I would ask all of you, there's been a lot of interest in these topics. My suggestion was that we focus first on the new member orientation and training. And I was guessing that all of you would like to take the new member orientation and training. And then maybe a year from now, we would have like the refresher training for everybody who'd been on. Would I be right in that assumption? Okay, great. So my thought process, Yang, is, is that we would work on the big new member orientation and training, see how that goes. And then for next year, we'd work on the refresher training. So that wouldn't be something we'd have to finish. Does that, does that work for everybody? So that'll, that'll one, yeah, one idea we also talked about is that uh, instead of uh, having all of you go to you know different trainings here and there, uh, we might uh, work with the staff at a uh, attorney's office, uh, common counsel's office, for example, maybe do something all together. So maybe also through what we go through webinar as well. If uh, uh, you cannot be here in person, so uh, kind of condense that into just one session. Um, it'll be a to, longer session. Yeah, it's going to be a longer session. That's a downside. 
Um, but you know, something like you know, for Robert's rule, uh, not of you don't have to do you know every single detail of those. Uh, so you might, yeah. So we might be able to condense those. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another idea that uh, we were exploring, and that might also yeah. be a model for you know other commissions and boards as well. So yeah, well, I think that and that w that's a great question to ask you. Uh, you could break it up into pieces and have Legistar training on this day at this time. You could have Robert's rules on this day at this time. You could, you could, we could break it up into smaller pieces, or we could have it all in one. So you could say, okay, I got to spend, I don't know if it would end up being half a day. I'm guessing it would be at least, would you say half a day? I mean, that's just off the top of my head. I'm thinking it might be half a day to cover all of these topics or several hours for sure. Would, would that work better, do you think, to just get it out of the way and have it all done at one time or have it done in pieces over several days? schedule it so I will just say like when we scheduled the the tour mm -hmm. that was two few days to select from too close to the actual date okay so if we can schedule it out further uh -huh. I mean I don't know about other folks but I just, I have to travel a lot and I have a lot of meetings during the day or what we do so I work with volunteers in my job, and we do uh, estate employees on the weekends. I don't know if that's an option. We do nights and weekends to accommodate their schedule. Mm -hmm. um, that's certainly doable, you know, for me. Those are those would be things that I would that would work for me. So, would weekends be something that other people would be? Not so much, huh? Uh, all right. So those those are some of the things that we will think about that um, when we. Because we know from past experience, not everybody's going to be able to come on one day. So we did talk about recording it, so then you could watch it as if you can't come to the in-person. I think that would be really helpful. And if maybe, I mean, because that, that would be an opportunity, too, to break it. And, you know, if some people would rather do it all at once and others would rather break it into smaller pieces, if you can record it, mm -hmm. then it's available for the people who want to break it into smaller pieces to to do like a self-learning kind of right yeah the the, the other benefit of, of having an in-person training session particularly for the new members would be to meet john strange to meet tom lynch you know, to have the the people there that um would be important connections for people to have um and if you're just watching a webinar you don't have that connection so um, but those are some of the things that, that we're talking about. Um, and we've made a lot of progress, I think. Um, we've got our assignments for the, for the next time around. So um, I think we've got a good, a good chunk of it done. Um, yeah. And I want to thank Anne for her leadership on this. And uh, she spent all the time drafting you know, quite a big portion uh, of the handbook. So thank you for that. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be great to be able to bring it to you and, and get your feedback on it. But we want to make sure we're all in agreement on it and then we have where the resources can be parked and we can talk to some folks about the training, make sure we have good ideas um, on that as well. So it may take a few more meetings before we, we've got it ready to bring. So other comments or questions about that? Okay. Uh, so the reports of other committees are out in Legistar, right, Patrick? Mm -hmm. For everybody to take a look at. 
announcements and future agenda items. Um, we had a, a discussion. Uh, I'm really just going to jump down to our future agenda items. And we sent out um, an updated work plan to everybody. And uh, you might wonder what's in red type. Well, what, what's in red? So the first thing I did was I, I suggested that we reformat it. So um, there are page breaks, Bill, so one quarter stops at the bottom of a page, so you can just look at a, a quarter at a time. Um, added some bullet points. There's some cosmetic changes. Um, the first bullet point on the note I added, because that was a theme that I have heard from everybody, that we don't want to just see the data. We, we want to dig into the data. We want to understand why. We want an analysis of the data. So we move these notes up front so everybody can see them and be thinking about that. Um, and the other were just um, some other thoughts that, uh, that we had, and one was, was a topic that I wanted to add for our work plan year. But you all asked if we could place future agenda items on the agenda so you could provide guidance on additional information. I gave that a lot of thought. I devote a lot of personal time to trying to keep track of these things, and so does staff, and we meet to talk about agendas, and we change the agenda sometimes, like up to a day before the actual meeting. So it's really hard to know what's going to be referred by to us from the council. Some of these things are, are really hard. But we're spending a lot of time on this work plan. So the compromise that I have for you is that we're going to, maybe Patrick can explain how you're going to do this, but Patrick's going to attach the work plan so that it's in Legistar every time under this topic for future agenda items. Did I say that right? So every meeting, you can look at the work plan. And you can say, oh, so, Bill, last time you talked about school. Stay for us school. Yeah. So, okay. So when we talk about future agenda items, you can, we can look at the work plan and say, and for example, here, if you look at uh, April, May, and June, um, the transportation improvement plan, so under quarter four, that's coming next meeting, right, Yang? We know this, this is one of the few where we knew that it was scheduled ahead of time. So that is going to be coming. So you, you can see, and B-Cycle is going to be coming sometime over the course of the next couple of months, our, our standard report. So if we look at this quarter in our work plan, then you can give feedback to everybody, oh, the transportation improvement plan, you know, can you be thinking about this or this or this? So that when it comes to us, that was my understanding of what you were hoping to accomplish. So is this a compromise that's going to work for everybody? Oh, yeah. So that could be brought up under new business then? It's, it's under future agenda items. Yeah, okay. So it says that's a standard agenda item at the end. So you can bring up um, items that aren't on our work plan that you would like to be considered, like, for example, 
the paratransit discussion that we had, Rebecca brought that up at a meeting and said, I would like to see this. So during this portion of the meeting, you can bring those in, or you can look at our work plan and say, say, you know, we have school zone safety coming up here. I want to have a presentation on safe routes to school program before we see that program or, you know, so that we can understand that better. So we can really use our work plan for several different things. So, so my question, uh, one of the items, and I just didn't see it on here, that I was interested in talking a little bit more about is the sort of special event, <coughs> special oh. events and how those might affect uh, the whole scope of what we're working with. And so, for example, um, when would be an appropriate opportunity to, to provide more more thought on what we might like to see on that agenda item. Okay, let me. I, I have a I have a personal list that I keep of things that are things that people have mentioned that maybe didn't specifically make it on here, and I called it. Let me tell you what I called it, and you can tell me if that covers what you're talking about. Informational presentation on special events impact on transportation. There was such a presentation given to the Transportation Policy and Planning Board. Correct. Yeah. So uh, the transportation events, um, uh, you know, the policy on that, uh, the board is going to be the lead on that. And it has already been, uh, you know, talking about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we definitely... Uh, can invite those staff members be here, be here and talk about the, you know give us uh, some information so we're aware of what's going on. So yeah. yeah. Mm. Okay. So we'll um, we have I have that on my personal list. So we have our work plan and then we have some special projects and then there are things like this that come up and and one of the things that that's real important is the transportation policy and planning board makes policy decisions or recommends those policy decisions to the council, whether it's modifying po uh, policy or creating new policies. We have some things that people might consider policies, like setting fares and things like that, that we do. But the policies that are either changed or made or recommended by the policy board, we need to live within those. We need to enforce them. We need to implement them. So... That's part of why we have those crossover members and why we have the reports and why we should be looking at the minutes of what happened. And what happens um, and should happen is, well, they take action on those items. We may need an informational presentation on those items so that when we make decisions related to special events, parking fees at the ramps or something like that, or <coughs> something related to on-street parking, or uh, transit, because transit has issues, ridership uh, declines because of special events. Um, so we need to have that information so we can make the best decision. Yeah, and that's why I just want to, I want to be able to understand what does wind up getting implemented in terms of policy. Yes. So that's something that, and I'll have to, I think staff, we need to rely on staff and, and uh, reading the minutes as well. What happens at the policy board um, and what needs to come to us, often it'll come to us informational only, 
but we need to have that information. So, I mean, it's more work for us, but I, I don't see a way around it, as you said. Okay, so does that cover pretty much what you wanted in, in terms of that special events, how he termed it? Yeah, it's an answer that I, yep, I, I understand. Okay. Yep. No, I mean, did I cover everything that you would want to hear about related to special events? Informational presentation on special events impact on transportation. I mean, it's fairly broad. Yeah, I guess. Um, Is there a better way to describe what you what you heard, Yang? I think you summarized pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, if you think of anything more, send it to Patrick and me. Okay. And we'll get it on the list, and Yang, and we'll get it on the list. So I guess I, I would like to know, I would like a picture of the special events side in terms of the the number, the volume, and the impacts that the impacts to transportation, which I am assuming will have informed the policy, but to have that background. Okay. All right. Any Anything else for future agenda or any comments related to anything that's going to be coming up here um, in the next quarter? <coughs> Excuse me. I almost made it through the meeting. Yeah, yeah. That's why I have my cough drops here. Okay. All right, so what we'll do going forward then is you're welcome to bring up any topics that aren't in our work plan and that you want us just as we have in the past. But then um, if you will take a look at that, um, the work plan each time and then think about those things that, uh, I mean, we had a great conversation at the last meeting about these things. Um, it would be really helpful, and it will make for better presentations, I think. So, all right. Um, any other uh, future agenda topics? Okay. No, uh, just one, one thought. Sure. It might be too premature. It might actually be more relevant to a, the policy and planning board, but <clears throat> um, the head of maintenance over at Metro mm -hmm. is developing – some we haven't had before, which would be a, an internship program to develop more mechanics. We're hard to uh, find. There's a higher rate of retirement and new people coming up with a background and skills. Uh -huh. We'd like to uh, hear more about that and maybe if uh, the commission agrees, do what we can to encourage management to make sure he's backed and, if we like it, backed and funded and and uh, encourage, and if uh, Chuck heard from this commission on a topic like that, it would give him a little more uh, uh, support. Okay. But anyway, uh, I just found out that it's at a very <clears throat> premature level. Uh, it does exist in a few cities. We don't have it here, and I think it would be uh, very wise mm -hmm. planning for the future and address a number of society and social issues of uh, equality by providing opportunities that mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even know they have by giving uh, or having the city provide that sort of training and internship. Okay. It, would, it would ultimately, in the long term, really benefit Metro to have a pool of mechanics. 
So this is a, is is it Carl only an internship program that's at Metro or Yang? Do you know is it an internship program that's throughout the city or? Uh, so there are various uh, internships uh, programs throughout the city, but I think the uh, the one the car is talking about is specifically for Metro. Okay. Uh, so for for example, for traffic engineering, we're going to house uh, two interns. Oh. Uh, this summer, one is a aspire intern. Uh, which kind of aligned with the Metro's program, uh, which are targeted the uh, minorities and the females. So because, uh, uh, you know, a lot of city, you know, government uh, representation does not um, uh, proportionally covers minorities and uh, uh, females. Uh, so that's a program that's really encourage uh, college students to have uh, some experience with city government and hopefully uh, learn something, help them help their career and also hopefully uh, build their interest for public service uh, when they choose their career. So that's one, one intern program. Uh, so that one is funded by the city. Uh, so a second intern we're going to house this summer uh, is a student from Yale. Uh, he was funded uh, uh, by a different agency uh, through Yale. Uh, he's interested in our, uh, our Smart City initiative. Uh, so he wants to uh, um, come to Madison for a summer intern, uh, you know, bring funding with it. Um, and uh, he's interested in working on uh, evaluation of some of smart city uh, initiatives that city are doing and how does that help uh, uh, transportation, uh, maybe even, you know, uh, reduce pollution, uh, help the environment, climate change. Uh, so he likes to do, you know, those type of uh, 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 research and study he here this Madison? summer. Yeah, he yeah. chose Madison, so uh, it's pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so Carl, uh, you'd like to hear from Chuck about this? The guy. I think maybe we should invite the uh, head of maintenance. Okay. Marlon, and uh, what he's envisioning, if he can get the backing to set it up in Madison, is not just a summer intern summer internship, but a multi-year program, uh, <laughs> so that. The graduates would be fully equipped in all aspects of bus maintenance, not just, you know, specialists in brakes. Okay. Like apprenticeship. Apprenticeship is a good word. Okay. I like that word. Yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you. That's a much better word to describe what he's talking about when I'm trying to okay. talk about getting support for. Okay. Very interesting. Any other topics? Okay. Anybody interested in a journey? Some move. All right. Is there a motion? Is there a second? Second. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't hear you, Carl. Uh, motion and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Nobody opposed. Motion carried. All right. Sorry, my head is, like, totally blocked up tonight, so my hearing is not great.